Actually, somebody had called us Thursday, called Alicia, and said, hey, I have some tickets to a concert uh, by a guy named Andrew Peterson, and he's one of our favorites. We like him. He's an author and a singer. And we said, well, yeah, sure, we want tickets to the show. And said, well, the thing is, it's in Topeka. I was like, what? <laughs> We're going to drive all the way to Topeka for a concert? Sure. And so we picked up Kyla at work, and we literally drove all the way out to Topeka to go to this concert. And as we're sitting there, um, they start singing this song. And I'm like, man, God works in mysterious ways. Like he took us all the way to Topeka just so I could have an introduction to my sermon. (laughs) I thought that was awesome. What are the chances that somebody would sing a song of the genealogies? Okay. Last week, we got into Matthew, right? Matthew begins his gospel in a really unusual way and then he starts going through the genealogies. Now, when we read through some of the genealogies in the Old Testament, they can be a little boring. We don't really know what they mean. We can't really pronounce all the names. So generally we skip to the end and then move on to the next section. But Matthew here is aiming at a Jewish audience. That's who he's writing to. And he's trying to answer Jewish questions about this Messiah King and to prove that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. You see, Matthew 
had really walked away from the faith. Um, for all intent and purposes, he had walked away from his own people. And maybe it was the lack of hope of seeing some of these prophecies fulfilled. Uh, maybe he went to synagogue and somebody wounded him. You know, maybe somebody spilled coffee on him. I don't know. We don't really know why Matthew walked away from the faith, but we do know that he didn't just walk away. He became a traitor to his own people in that he became a tax collector. Um, really, if you can't beat him, join him. Right? Like if, if, if he's not coming back, if we don't see signs of the Messiah, and if this is all there is, then I'm just going to take care of number one. But the Holy Spirit was doing something inside of Matthew this whole time. Uh, he started to hear reports that there was this carpenter rabbi that was saying things, teaching like nobody had ever taught before. And he was doing things that nobody had ever done before, performing miracles and taking on the religious Pharisees of the day. And nobody had ever done that before. Um, he starts to remember back to these stories that he had learned when he was a child, all the prophecies that he had been told about, about a son of David who was going to save them and save the people. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. He starts thinking about it. He's of the tribe of Judah. Um, I mean, I think he was born in Bethlehem. And there's a rumor going around that he was born supernaturally, like it was a miracle. And somebody else told me that he grew up in Egypt. He starts thinking about all these things. And this man, Yeshua, Jesus, which means the Lord saves, he walks by Matthew's tax booth and he looks him square in the eye and he says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. That's all he said. And Matthew gives it all up. Now, he, he probably said, what? Like me? You want me to follow you? I mean, there wasn't any hiding who he was. He's sitting at his tax booth. And he probably looked around and saw the guys that were around Jesus and thought, well, these guys are nothing special, but I'm going to be the worst by far. I am a tax collector. But he gave up his old life. He was done with that, and he followed Jesus. And after 20 years, roughly 20 years, after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, he starts to compile all of these things that he had written down. And he gives us this detailed biography of the Messiah. And I have to wonder if it was such big news, like why did he wait almost 20 years to write it down? That's a long time. Well, I would suggest to you that it's because he was out doing what Jesus told them to do when he left. And they were going into all the world and they were preaching the gospel and they were making disciples. Uh, Matthew, and I said this last week, Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. That's a long ways from Jerusalem. And he was martyred there. But when he gets into it, when he sits down to write his gospel, he starts right in with the incarnation. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. The story of... Um, a farmer on one raw winter night. And as he's sitting there at the kitchen, he starts to hear this thumping on the window. Um, and he starts to look over there. And what he sees is a couple of sparrows and they're banging themselves against the window and they're trying to get in. I and mean, they must have been, you know, drawn to the light or the warmth in the house. And he starts to look at them and says, well, I, you know, try to do something about this. These guys are going to freeze out here in this weather. And so he goes outside and he opens up the barn and he puts some hay down and he turns the light on and then he goes out and he takes some crackers and he starts sprinkling a trail to the barn. And they're not coming in, so he 
uses a couple different tactics. He circles back behind him and tries to shoo him into the barn. Um, he starts throwing some of the you know, crackers and seeds up into the air to try to get him to move. But nothing is working because this huge alien foreign creature has terrified them by coming out of the house. And they didn't understand that he just was trying to help them. And so he goes back inside and he's watching them through the window uh, as they are, you know, he says, they're not coming out. They're probably just going to freeze to death out there. And then a thought hits him like lightning that if I could just, if I could just become a bird for a second, if I could just become a bird and I could show them the way to safety. If I could prove to them that I wasn't trying to hurt them, I was trying to take them to a place where they would be safe. And then it hits him. It dawns on him the weight of God becoming man. And that's what he was doing is he was coming here to be one of us, to talk to us so that we would not be scared out of our minds. And he was showing us the way back to him. There have been some incredible births in the Bible. Um, take Isaac, for example. Isaac was the boy that was promised to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was 90 years old when she had Isaac, way past childbearing years. And God actually had a sense of humor when he was there talking to Abraham and said, this time next year, I'm going to come back. You're going to have a son. And Sarai laughed. And God said, that's a good one. Name him that. You should name him Isaac. Isaac means one who laughs. That was a miraculous birth. And then we have the birth of Samuel, the prophet. Samuel's, pro Samuel's mother was a woman named Hannah, and Hannah and her husband had been trying to have kids for a long time, but they hadn't been able to get pregnant. And every year they would make a journey to Shiloh, a place called Shiloh, and that's where they would worship and offer sacrifices to God. And one year they went there and Hannah slipped into the sanctuary and she's just so brokenhearted. She's in agony because she's praying to the Lord to say, God, we want to have a child. And Eli, who's the priest, sees her there and he sees her praying and she's talking, but nothing's coming out. There's no sound coming out of her mouth. And so he assumes that she's drunk. And so he walks up to Hannah and he's like, what, what is the deal? Get out of here. Like go sober up and then you can come back. And she explains to him, I'm, I'm not drunk. Um, I'm in agony. I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord and I'm asking for a son. And if God will give me a son, I will give him back to the Lord. I'll dedicate him to God. And Eli is just touched by this. And he says, you know what? Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your request. And before the year was out, she ends up having Samuel. And when he was weaned, she takes him back to the temple and dedicates him, and he's raised by Eli, and he is the one that becomes the prophet that anoints David. That's pretty awesome. That's a miraculous thing. Then, of course, there's John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one that was going to come before the Messiah and prepare the way and tell people that he was on the way. This is an amazing story. His dad, Zechariah, was a Levite. And his group, it was their turn to serve at the temple. And so they would, they would uh, cast lots, basically like taking your name out of a hat to see who would go in that day and offer incense on the altar. And so one day they pull a name out of the hat and it's Zechariah. And he gets to go in and it's a big deal that he gets this. He goes into the holy place where the altar is and he's offering this incense and all of a sudden, an angel appears to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son. 
and Zechariah, they had been praying for a baby decades ago. Like a long time ago, they were praying for a baby, but not anymore because it said they were very well advanced in years. That's what the Bible says. say. They were old at this point. Where did this happen? It happened at the altar of incense. In Psalm 141, verse 2, it says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Where did he get his prayer answered? At the altar. When we pray, it could be like Abraham. It could be full of faith in our backyard. Uh, It can be like Hannah in the sanctuary, broken in agony, pouring out our hearts to the Lord. Or it can be like Zechariah. It could be something we prayed at the altar years ago. And God comes through and answers that promise. Um, He always answers our prayers. Always. Sometimes people say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. He always answers it. Because no is just as much an answer as yes is. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it's not yet. And sometimes it's no. But that's just as much of of an answer. How can we enter into what God's doing? Um, We do that through prayer. Prayer, I've said this before, prayer is basically reporting for duty. Uh, talking to God, saying, God, hear my request. You know what's on my heart, but I want to hear what you have to say. What do you want to tell me about this situation? And if we want to see breakthrough in our lives, spiritually and practically, we need to be at the altar. We need to be offering up our prayers to the Lord. Um, we might just experience a miracle. But you're never going to know unless you partner with him and come to him in prayer. And what was birthed inside these women, inside these women, these miraculous births, was of the Lord and it was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to read about today. The birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from the dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The most miraculous birth that the world was ever going to see and ever has seen, the virgin birth. And and Matthew doesn't give us much information about it. He only gives us eight verses. But if I was going to write about something that incredible, that important, I would have taken volumes to write about it. And you say, we know. (laughs) I would have taken a lot to write about it, but he only gives us eight verses. Matthew... This was not a complicated fact to him. It had been prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus was going to be born when he was coming and he was going to be born of a virgin. During Easter week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. We call this the triumphant entry. 
And as he is riding in, people are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he gets to the top of the hill and he's looking over Jerusalem. And he wept as he looked at the city because he said, you should have known that I was coming. You should have known that today was the day because Daniel prophesied to the day when Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem and they weren't looking for him. Their eyes had been blinded and they weren't looking for the virgin birth either. Now, if God does something miraculous, you can bet that Satan's going to be right there offering a counterfeit, something fake, something to confuse us. He does that not just to cause confusion, but also to make the miraculous seem rather mundane, to make it seem normal, that there's an explanation for that. The Romans believed that the mythical figure Zeus impregnated a woman without contact and conceived a god named Dionysus, who they call the Lord of the Earth. That was one myth. The Babylonians had a priestess named Semiramis who claimed that she was impregnated by a sunbeam, which produced somebody called Tammuz. The ancient Sumerians have a similar story, and even Buddha's mother claims that at his conception, she saw a gigantic white elephant enter her body, which is probably why he's so big. (laughs) Satan's produced multiple myths like this, and unfortunately, a lot of liberal teaching in the church has led to a growing number of people not believing in the virgin birth, that there had to be some kind of natural explanation. It couldn't have happened that way. But all the gospels teach us that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And specifically in Matthew and Luke, they give us these accounts of a virgin birth. To ignore the virgin birth is to ignore his deity, to ignore his godness. Even his enemies knew it. In John 5.18, Jesus was healing on the Sabbath. And it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if that's not true, then Jesus is a liar and a deceiver. And why would you follow or worship somebody who was a deceiver? Jesus of Nazareth is either the greatest deceiver the world has ever known, or he is who he said he is. Unbelief has been the man's biggest problem since the fall, Um, just our inability to believe, but yet we buy into these lies of Satan. That's why Paul writes in Romans 3, he said, let God be true and every man a liar. If any, everyone around us is saying the same thing, and it's contrary to what God says, then everyone is lying because only God is true. Satan is the father of lies. That's why he puts forth these falsehoods, these cheap counterfeits. If Jesus wasn't fully human and fully God, then there is no gospel. Because if he wasn't God, then there is no salvation of sins. If he wasn't fully human and fully God, then there is no gospel. There is no good news because we would not be able to be saved from our sins. And what Paul said, he said, if that's true, then we as Christians are the most to be pitied because we've been deceived, if that is true. But we know that that's not true. So we are not to be pitied. We have the truth. All right, we talked last week that if somebody makes a claim to be king, then they need to prove their heritage. They need to show their credentials. And Matthew already did that last week. Through the genealogies, he proved his earthly heritage. But it was going to take a lot more than just human pedigree to prove that he was the Messiah because there were lots of guys back then that could have traced their lineage back through David. 
So it was going to take more than that. It was going to take more than a human pedigree to show that he was the Messiah. And we're going to go through this just kind of verse by verse and break it down. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When, the mother, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here we have Mary. Most scholars believe a teenager at this point, maybe around 15 years of age, which was not unusual for women to be engaged. And she is betrothed in that culture when a man and a woman would become engaged, they were considered man and wife at that point. They were considered married in every way except for being intimate. They were considered man and wife. The engagement typically lasted about a year. And I, this wasn't in my notes, but I'm talking about it anyway because it's cool. Um, the, the, typically, it lasted about a year. During that year, the husband would go and prepare a place for them. He would go build a home for them. Typically, he would do this at his father's house, and he would make, uh, he would make a home for them to live in. And then he would, he would come back a year later to get his bride. Now, nobody knew exactly when he was coming back, but they knew the season because if they got engaged in the summertime, they knew he was coming back in the summertime, but they didn't know the day. So they had to be prepared. When summertime got there, they needed to be prepared. And what would happen is the best man would come in and he would make the announcement that the bridegroom is coming and then the party was on and the feast was going to be had. And if you remember, when Jesus was sitting down with his disciples, he said, listen, I am going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that. I wouldn't lie to you guys. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back. You need to be ready. You guys aren't going to know the day, but you're going to know the seasons. You're going to be able to tell when the time is getting close. And I can tell you, it's getting close. It's getting real close. Alicia and I were listening to some things yesterday. Scared me half to death. It's getting close. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that during this time, during this one-year period, that the angel Gabriel was sent to Mary to let her know that she was going to be birthing the Messiah. This is the same Gabriel who stood before Zechariah at the altar and gave him the news that he was going to have a son and that they were to name him John. But their reactions were totally different. They both were told the same thing. They both essentially asked the same question. Zechariah asked, how is this going to happen? Because, you know, I'm old. <laughs> Me and Elizabeth are old. And Mary asked the question, how's this going to happen? Because I haven't been with a man. So they both asked the same question, but they're different reactions because Zechariah doubted. He asked, how's this going to happen? But he doubted in his heart. And because of that, the angel said, you're not going to be able to talk until John's born. You're going to be struck down because you doubted. Mary, on the other hand, believes it. And she sings a song. She says, let it be done to me as you have said. And she ends up singing a song. Zechariah disbelieved. Mary believed it. When you get a word from the Lord, you need to hang on to it. You need to believe it. We have those books, God's promises, and you need to read those. The, the promises in the Bible are for you and me, especially the New Testament promises. They are for the church. We can hang on to those. Don't lose those. That that truth, that promise to Mary was going to sustain her through what was going to be a really difficult time for her, a really big problem personally. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph had a double problem here because his reputation and his morals as a righteous man were at stake. But 
it was that same righteousness that didn't want to put her to shame. He was more concerned about her shame than he was about his shame. And that's a rare quality. That's a rare quality. He stands for righteousness, but he's also merciful. Uh, A lot of men are either one or the other. A lot of men will stand up for righteousness, but they're also ready to pass judgment when somebody steps out of line. Or we err on the side of being too merciful and we end up enabling people in their sin instead of them calling, instead of calling them up and calling them out. So may we be men and women that stand for righteousness, but also can show mercy the way Joseph did. So Joseph has a big problem. He knew what the law provided for in this circumstance. Remember back to Judah and Tamar? We talked about it last week. When he found out that Tamar was pregnant, she wasn't married, he said, bring her out here and let her be burned. That's what he called for. He was standing up for righteousness, but he was judgmental and he didn't know that it was his fault. And Tamar comes out and she produces the evidence and he says, you're more righteous than I am. I thought I was standing up for righteousness. I was standing in judgment. You're more righteous than I am because I did not do what I was supposed to do. I did not fulfill my duty. But he decided to divorce her quietly. During this 12-month engagement, they really could separate at any time. They could, you know, dissolve it and they could walk away, divorce her quietly and, you know, no harm, no foul, basically. But most of these were arranged marriages. So if at any time they decided, you know what, this just isn't going to work out, they could walk away. He could just give her a certificate of divorce and uh, they would part. Mary knows, though, that getting divorced is the least of her problems because once they find out that she is pregnant, that could mean death for her. But her faith was bigger than her fear. One of our favorite movies that we like to watch during the Christmas season that we'll watch this week is called The Nativity. Put that up there. This is the, if you have not seen this movie, this Nativity, you need to watch it this week. It's, it's really good. And in it, when her family and Joseph find out that she's pregnant, when she comes back from visiting Elizabeth, they are coming down on her, obviously, and trying to figure out what happened. And she says this, she says, there is a plan for this child that is greater than my fear of what man may do to me. Her faith was bigger than her fear. God has a plan for you and me that is greater than the fear of what man can do to us. She had Jesus inside of her. She was carrying the Messiah. You and I have Jesus living inside of us. We can have faith that's bigger than our fear because we are his. Right? Amen? Amen. Jesus tells his disciples later on in Matthew 10, he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I said this when we were finishing up Habakkuk. God's plan is bigger than your plan. It might be slower than your plan. It might be more complicated. It might be more painful. But his plan is better than your plan. One of my favorite parts is, you know, Mary went to see Elizabeth. She left and she went to see her. And when she got there, she shouted out to Elizabeth and Elizabeth, John jumped up inside of her belly. And for you ladies that have carried babies, you know what that feels like. (laughs) But John was literally filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb And when they got together, that's an amazing thing to me. And that's when Mary started singing. And Elizabeth says, who am I 
that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Which means the angel, an angel had told her that the Messiah was going to be birthed through Mary. If I was Mary, I would have grabbed her and taken them home with me. <laughs> because she's got a big problem when she comes back. I don't know why she didn't take Zachariah and Elizabeth with her, but she didn't. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. After Joseph had resolved to divorce Mary, the angel appears to him. He had made a decision, but he wasn't at peace with it. Um, have you guys ever been in that situation where you've made a decision, but you're just not settled with it? You're not at peace. Um, Best thing to do on those is wait. <laughs> wait and get a definite answer from the Lord. Another thing is we really need to make room because the, tra the, the trap is, and I've been going through this over the last couple months um, with my job situation. The, the trap is, is that we get so consumed in our minds with what to do and we're making plans A, B, and C and we're not leaving room for God and his input on the matter. We pray, but are we listening to what he wants us to do? And so I just think it's interesting because at the time that Joseph rests, he lays down, he goes to sleep. That's when God gives him a word. Otherwise, we're just trying to figure it out on our own. So remember, before we're becoming too consumed in our thoughts of what to do, make room for what God wants to say to you. And in that word, he reminds Joseph of who he is. He says, Joseph, son of David. Now, he's a son of David, not the son, but he's going to be responsible for the son of David. He's reminding him, listen, yes, Messiah, this is supposed to come through the line of David. You're a son of David. This makes sense. You're going to be an adopted father of the Messiah. And Mary actually is in the line of David too, which is really interesting. And Luke gives us that lineage. So he reminds him of who he is. Then the angel tells him not to fear. Obviously, he was afraid. I would have been completely freaked out of what to do. How can I raise your son, Lord? I'm not your guy. I'm just a carpenter. I can't do this. How am I supposed to raise the son of God? And it tells us in that last line, that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit, an empowering of the Holy Spirit. Guys, has your wife ever gone to like a ladies' retreat? or maybe a Bible study, and she came home, and she was acting a little strange. She was super excited. The, the Spirit was stirring inside of her. Don't fear. <laughs> Don't fear. She may be acting a little strange, because the Spirit is moving inside of him. And the Spirit moving inside of us is the best thing that can happen to our lives. It's the best thing that can happen to our relationships, best thing that can happen to our marriages, is for the Holy Spirit to start stirring us up, to start working inside of us. It says, don't fear. What's been done inside of Mary is of the Holy Spirit. And what's done inside of us needs to be birthed by the Holy Spirit. Listen to these fear nots in the nativity story. The first fear not is of salvation. And the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The angel told him to fear not. Salvation is here. Then the fear not of the humanly impossible. Fear not, Mary. The Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. 
Fear not. Regardless of your situation, nothing's impossible with God. The fear not of unanswered prayer. Angel said, fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer's been heard. And your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son and you shall call his name John. The fear not of unanswered prayer. And the fear not of immediate obedience. Joseph, fear not. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And then later in verse 24, it says that Joseph did as the angel told him to do. Immediate obedience. Don't fear. Take Mary. Go ahead and do it now. And that's what Joseph did. The fear nots. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save the people from their sins. The angel told both Mary and Joseph what to name him just so there was no confusion. It's interesting because the angel also told Zechariah what to name their son, to name him John. And John means graced by God or God is gracious. That's what John means. And he would be the forerunner, the one that would prepare the way for the Messiah. I think it's interesting because God's grace comes first. God's grace moves in our lives. We are saved by grace through faith, right? Grace, his grace is coming first, preparing people for the Messiah King. You and I are to be like John. We are to be telling people that the kingdom is here, preparing them for his second return. He's coming back. The kingdom is here. We need to get ready. The king is coming. And at that time, as John was preaching, some people believed, but some people just simply yawned. Okay, kingdom's here. King's coming. And today we proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom of of God is here. Jesus is coming back and people just shrug their shoulders. People shrug their shoulders. People are doing that today. Jesus, or Yeshua, was the name Joshua. And it literally means Jehovah saves. The Lord saves. The angel told Joseph, name him Jesus because he's going to save the people from their sins. And when John was in the river baptizing, he's dunking people, and he sees Jesus walking by. He said what Elisha said. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that sentence is packed with so much meaning. Everybody knew what the lambs were for. They were for the sacrifices. They were for the forgiveness of sins. They would take them to the temple and they would be slain. So when he yells out the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that's exactly what he was saying. Everybody knew he was saying, here is the Messiah. This is God's chosen. You need to be following him. The kingdom has come. Now, this would have made Joseph think of two other significant men in the Old Testament named Joshua. The first one, of course, being Moses' right-hand man, the one that was responsible given the job for taking the people out of the desert and into the promised land. And the promised land in the Old Testament is a picture of the kingdom life that we're living right now. The promised land isn't, it's not heaven. Because when they went into the promised land, they had battles to fight. They ran into enemies. And you and I have a real enemy right now that is trying very hard to deceive people. Not just in these old myths, but in new ways too. And liberal teaching in the churches, again, is a deception that is leading people away from the truth of the gospel. So they ran into enemies. We have an enemy. Joshua led the people into battle. And Jesus has won the battle. 
And he continues to fight our battles for us if we let him in the here and now. Joshua fought until there was peace in the land. And Jesus is our Prince of Peace. That's the first Joshua. The second Joshua is one you may not have heard of. He was a priest when the people were coming back from Babylon. And he was encouraging the people at the time to rebuild the temple because they'd come back from Babylon. They were getting comfortable. They were kind of DIYing it. They were fixing up their homes, making their homes comfortable. And he said, listen, you guys are fixing up your homes, but the temple, the house of God, is sitting in ruins. You guys need to be about the pursuits of God, not about your own pursuits. And he was encouraging people to rearrange their priorities. That's something we could all think about, rearranging our priorities. He's a picture of the promised Messiah. In Zechariah 3, the prophet has a vision of the high priest, and he's standing before the Lord, and he's wearing filthy clothes. His clothes are filthy because it represents the sins of the people. And that was the job of the high priest, to bear the sins of the people, to take them in to the Holy of Holies with the blood of the Lamb to offer forgiveness for the people. And he's standing there and Satan is accusing him and he's wearing these dirty clothes. And an angel comes down and gives him new clothes, takes away the dirty clothes, dresses him in linens of white, in brand new priestly garments to symbolize that the sin is going to be taken away. We are going to be robed in righteousness. And then Zechariah says this, chapter 3, verse 8, says, listen, High priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, which is Jesus. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it that says, the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And the branch, who is Jesus, would indeed remove the people's sin in a day when he died on the cross. And then in Zechariah 6, 6, 11, it says, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, from he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is the branch, the prophetic Jesus, the Messiah. That's the other Joseph or that's the other Joshua that he would have been thinking of. All right. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew here is pointing to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. prophecies. This is the culmination or the completion of these revelations. Uh, We just had multiple ones just in this small little verse. Um, He's born of a virgin. He's a son of David. And he is to be called Emmanuel, God with us. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, God told Moses to build a tabernacle, to build a tent, and that's where they were going to put the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the tangible presence of God to the people, this Ark of the Covenant. And when it was put in this tent, it was there, but it was impersonal, and it was hidden. And Moses had to be the mediator between God and the people. And later on, they would build the temple, and it was beautiful, but it still contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was hidden and still impersonal. But when Jesus came, Jesus came here and he was personal and he was God with us and he started a relationship with us. The Old Testament picture of the tabernacle and the Ark, 
the New Testament picture of Jesus here, God with us. Emmanuel is his descriptive name. Jesus is his human name, and Christ is his official name, not his last name. A lot of people think Christ is his last name. It's not. That's his official name. Christ means anointed one. There were only three groups of people in the Old Testament that were anointed, and that was the prophets and the priests and the kings. Those three were anointed with oil. He was the prophet who came to declare the word of the Lord, as it says in Deuteronomy 18. He is called our high priest in Hebrews chapter 2. And he is the king of kings, as it says in Revelation 17. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king. And we get to talk about that more last, next week, which is probably my favorite part of the Christmas story. And it is the magi, the wise men that come to pay honor to him as king. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When Joseph woke up, he didn't put her away. He took her away. He took Mary as his wife. He knew at that point that what was happening was ordained by the Lord. There was no turning back. No matter what the cost was, there was no turning back. And there would be a cost. There would be a cost. If we live in obedience to the Lord, the way that he instructs us to live, there is going to be a cost. If we decide as his people to live for God, to follow the teachings of Jesus as he wants us to live, whatever it does to our reputation, right? we can live with a good conscience and let God take care of that. We can let God take care of our reputation. We can let him take care of our honor and our integrity as he did with Mary and Joseph. We can trust him with that. All we're called to do is live for him, to live the way that he wants us to. He's going to clear it all up. We really don't know much more about Joseph other than on the eighth day, he took Jesus to the, you know, to the temple and had him dedicated like he was supposed to. And then later on, he took him to Egypt to escape from Herod, who was seeking to kill the Messiah and was killing the babies. And so God told him, take him to Egypt. Uh, it's actually pretty cool because God gave him another dream. It'd be cool if Jesus talked to us in our dreams. Like Jesus took naps. Be like Jesus, right? Joseph took naps. Be like Joseph. Maybe God will talk to us in our dreams. So we don't know much about him other than he took responsibility for him. He dedicated him, and then he also protected him. And that's a good example for us to follow as dads, to take responsibility, to dedicate our families to the Lord, to lead them in righteousness, and then also to protect them, to protect them from the enemy. Uh, we are the ones who are called to do that, to be their protector, the priests of our household. People have a hard time believing in the virgin birth. Uh, a skeptic once asked a Christian, he said, if I told you that that person over there was born without a father, would you believe it? And the Christian said, yeah, if he lived like Jesus. If he lived like Jesus, I would believe it. How can we believe in the virgin birth? Because Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a sinless death, all that we, also that we could be dressed in righteousness, so that we could be dressed in robes of white and live with him forever. That's the whole point of him coming here as a baby. When the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, God spoke to them from the mountain and they were terrified. 
when they heard the voice of the Lord. And they told Moses, they said, we can't, we can't take it. You be the mediator. You be the one that talks to God because we're too terrified. God knows that his presence at that point in time was too much for them. He said, you can't even touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain where I am, then you're going to die. And so he had Moses be the mediator. He sent Jesus to be the mediator, just like the story of the farmer who scared away the sparrows. God knew that he is too big for us to comprehend, too big for us to understand. And so he, spent, he sent Jesus to teach us, to show us how much he loves us, how to show us the way, how to bring us back into relationship with him. What child is this? It's Yeshua. It's God's salvation. If our greatest need had been information, he would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, then he would have sent us an entertainer. But man's greatest need was forgiveness. And so he sent us a savior. Amen. And that's what we celebrate during the Christmas season. I posted a picture uh, this week and it was a picture of the nativity. But the nativity was over here and Jesus in the manger was way over here. And sometimes, you know, certainly the world loses track of that. They loses track of what Christmas is all about and the Savior, Yeshua, that came to save the people from their sins. We were just even walking around in Target last night and they hear these Christmas carols about, you know, the birth of Christ. I'm like, man, people hear these songs just right over their heads. They're not looking for Jesus just like they weren't looking for him back then. So it's up to us to be the light in the darkness, to tell people about it, to redirect their priorities during this season. This is the reason that we celebrate, because a Savior has come. Amen. So sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing.